Well, good morning. Woo, hot, hot today. Uh, my name is Glenn. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet with you after the service today. So if I don't chase you down, chase me down. We can talk. Um, I'm one of the pastors that's on staff here at Redeemer Church. And as I read through this passage this morning, I was like, wow, this is, I need this. And I think you'll find that we all do. Um, I'm powerless to affect change on my own. But this makes sense, right? If God is powerful and we're not, it uh, gives us the ability to preach his word and to talk about him, but doing it in his power. It, it actually, our weakness points to his power. And one of the, the known uh, characteristics of an early Christian is that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, by someone outside of their own selves. And I think Paul is really onto something here, and we're going to talk about that. Um, I want to give you guys a little bit more of a, a, an overview of what we're doing here. Uh, this sermon is part of uh, a, a whole sermon series that we're going to do for this summer called Belonging, which you might see the, the slide up behind us. And what we need in our current church is simply what Paul is saying in this passage. This passage simply says that we have less, and God has more, and God in his grace gives us more, right? This is what we need. We need a vision for our current interim season. This is why we're doing this sermon series. It's first on membership, Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to, to serve. Uh, first, we are served by Jesus, then we serve one another. Then what does it mean to lead as elders? So we're going to talk about servant leadership, talk about eldership, and all of that. Um, so we're going to be doing that uh, during this season. We're also going to be doing events that bring people together, partying in the parks uh, around Cedar Rapids, probably getting some sort of a scandalous reputation by doing that, I'm hoping. Um, but for us to be able to come together and love on one another after church outside of here, um, to, but to have a church where we're only being fed right here, it's just not sustainable. Like if you're coming here and you're listening to me, uh, the Apostle Paul says that my words are, they're not lofty, they're not, there's no power in them. What you need to do is experience God who has all the power, right? So we're hoping that our events where we're bringing people together will be able to help do that. We're also going to be forming a search team and a search process um, because we need to find a new staff pastor, and there's a lot of unknowns with that, but the one known thing that I really want for us to talk about is that we need to lean in on Jesus during this time. We need to trust in the Lord no matter what, no matter who, no matter what our, our church looks like in two months, three months. This has always been the case, but for some reason right now, God is highlighting that, that we need to trust in him for our new staff pastor that is going to be coming toward us. Um, there's no option for us to move forward without trusting in him. There just, there just isn't. But he is sufficient. Um, this, the, the Psalms say that God is, is giving us counsel with his eye on us. He's not far from us. He's here. So that's part of what we're going to be doing, the sermon series, finding a new uh, staff pastor, and all of that. But this sermon series is what belongs at Redeemer Church. What's belonging here all the time? And we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to be talking about that the entire summer, but it's members and it's servant leaders and it's pastors who are passionate about Jesus, who uh, throw their trust and their hope onto him, and unity belongs here, and serving belongs here, and discipleship of new believers belongs here. We'll talk about that all summer long. 
But let's look at this passage from this morning. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He had fear. He had trembling. He was possibly confused and scared. So what we need to see is the power of God come on us in such a way that, that our lives demand a gospel explanation from those who don't know Jesus but are looking on to our lives. That there's some explanation that's outside of ourselves that, that, that shows the power of God and shows what he has done for us. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. The works, the power, everything is in God's hands, and he brings that to us because of Jesus and because of our life in him. You also belong to one another. We're going to talk about that during this sermon, what it looks like for you to belong to one another, to be members of one another. At the end of the day, if you know Jesus and you're a member of this church, you belong here. You belong here to, to dig in and to love one another, to seek um, the power of God through his scriptures, through prayer, through uh, time together. And this all comes about because this is what God desires, is for us to belong here to each other, to him right now. And the main thesis is because of Jesus, we live lives that demand some sort of an explanation that's outside of ourself. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, in some ways it feels so distant to rely solely on you for words that we say to one another. And Lord, I think sometimes it feels that way because of, of pride Sometimes it feels that way because of our culture, which celebrates grand orators. Sometimes, I, Lord, I think it's because we don't understand your love for us and giving us power that lives inside of us in our inner being. But I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would wipe the slate clean, that you would show us what it means to be living in your power, living in your crucifixion, living in your work for us. So as I'm preaching this morning, Lord, would you, in your goodness, cause the words that you don't want people to remember to, to leave? But Lord, your word, your power, your goodness, would that remain in our hearts this week? Would it be front and center in our minds, in our hearts? I ask this, Lord, for your glory and for our joy through the power of the Spirit. Amen. So an early Christian, somebody in the book of Acts, would have really understood what Jesus said when he said, I was sent as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, John 20, 21, that you and I were sent here. Where you live, where you work, who you married, being right here this morning, you were sent by God for this. Paul was sent to Corinth by Jesus to preach. And what we see when he preached that he, being sent, that God gave him this authority to go and to preach, but he also filled in power. Because Paul, like me, 
and like you, it, we're not that impressive. Like we don't have the ability to know all, to have wisdom in every situation. And specifically when you're talking with someone who doesn't know Jesus, there's no prep time. There's no sermon prep time. You, you go to them and there's, there's not lofty speech and wisdom. You're, you're simply interacting with someone one-on-one -on -one, trying to bring the gospel, trying to steer the conversation to Jesus and his goodness. And sometimes there is not lofty speech and wisdom. As a matter of fact, there is fear and trembling. Like, what are they going to think about me? Am I going to say it correctly? Am I going to screw this up? And so what we see here is that Paul had that same experience. But he was like, I'm not relying on my own strength. I'm not relying on my own power. And that gave him this life that, that needed a gospel explanation because his power was coming to him. And we're, now we're going to talk about where that came from. But I want to do it through an illustration. So I have a slide of our dog. This is Bella coming up. And um, yeah, there it is. <laughs> so um, yeah, one person said, ah, oh, I don't understand that. She's a poodle. And so the reason I bring this up is I took her for a walk recently, and you couldn't believe the amount of people that were questioning why I was walking this dog. Uh, she's about eight, eight and a half pounds. Um, she, if you look closely, you see that one eye is kind of going a different direction than the other eye. She's not the prettiest thing that I've ever seen. And people always ask, like, you know, oh, is that a poodle? I'm like, yeah, it's a mini poodle. Why are you walking a poodle? Like, literally, that's what people ask. So there must be something about a 212-pound dude, depending on what I do with red meat, walking this eight-pound dog. Like, I'm a dude. And I wouldn't be invited to the women's Bible study because I'm a dude and I drive a big truck. It's a Ford Super Duty truck. And you would think, I guess, with a big tall dude like me and a big truck, that a wolf would jump out and that I would be walking that. But instead, it's this little hairball named Bella. And so people ask, like, do you love poodles? I'm like, no. She's like a remedial poodle. Like, she doesn't even like, get the, the good poodling. She's not that smart. Um, she's actually like the most scared thing I've ever met. Like somebody sneezes and she literally is like backing away into her kennel for like the next hour of her, her life. Like we have nothing in common. Like I just don't know anything about this dog. And people are like, wow, that's a really cute dog. And some people, and then some people are like, hey, are you going to clean that up on the trail? Do you have those blue bags that, you know, you can clean that up? And I'm like, oh, sorry, that's actually your dog. I, I thought maybe somebody had left a mess on the trail that you need to clean up. I'm like, no, it's on the leash. It's my dog. Here's the point. It's clear to me that when people see things that don't add up, they start to question it, and it needs an explanation. And here's what I mean by that is they start to ask why I would have a poodle. And the question is this. There is a deep motivation as to why I would walk this poodle, why this poodle would actually be a part of our household. My mom, on her deathbed, asked for us to take care of Bella, right? And I love my mom. Like, she's the woman who gave me life. So I am going to take care of Bella, and we do. We make sure she's got her shots. We make sure that other dogs don't eat her like a piece of popcorn. Um, times I have to stand in between her and other dogs. Um, the girls nurture her all the time. They treat her like a cat. She's basically like purring in dog purr. 
all the time because the girls are just like rubbing her and putting her in blankets and always dressing her up in clothes and, and all of that stuff. And I'm happy to do that. Why? Because the motivation is I want my mom, her wish to come true, that I would take care of this dog. So it's clear to me that people demand an answer when things don't line up. So what is it when you're in the workplace, is there something in your life that doesn't line up with the culture of the workplace? Or when you have people sit around your table and they eat with you in your home, is there something that, that doesn't quite line up with that? When people interact with us, do they see something different that demands some sort of an explanation as to why you're doing that? Like people cannot figure out why you're being nice to them. Is that true with you? They would say things like, well, I have a dining room table too, but I don't use it the way that you use it. Or what about people that don't agree with you theologically or people who don't agree with you morally or people who can't figure out why you give money to Jesus and they say, oh, I have money too, but I don't give it away the way that you do. And people can't figure out why or how you talk about the hard subjects and still love each other. They're saying, I work with people too, but I don't do that. When we are empowered by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, there's something about us that starts to demand uh, an explanation that's outside of ourselves. There's a power that comes from somewhere else. Just like Bella, there's some motivation that's underneath that moves us to treat people in a different way than how they're treating each other. We are sent. Matthew 28 also talks about this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay? So we are a sent people that are empowered by something that's outside of ourselves, just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. Let's catch up with this. Paul, who was sent to Corinth, said, When I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It has to start there. The, the power that God gives us, all of the power that he has, that he moves onto us, Paul is telling us in one sentence what is the utmost important thing for us to focus on, for us to consider. It says that he decided this. Another word is that he reckoned this, that he judged the main thing is Jesus and him crucified, that he perceived this, he determined this, he resolved this. There's an unbroken belief that his life was going to be about Jesus. So all of the words that Paul wrote, all of the books that he wrote in the New Testament, it comes down to this one sentence that I've resolved to know nothing among you except for what? Jesus and him crucified, his work for us. It's really, really important. You and I are one-dimensional in our beliefs. It's Jesus, 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 and that's it, and him crucified, his work for us. When I worked at Amana Farms, I was in charge of the GPSs, and the GPS on each tractor would control these tractors, a 60,000-pound tractor running 15 miles an hour down a, a row in a field, and it was sub-inch accuracy, right? And the way that it was sub-inch accuracy was because that computer on that tractor locked to a satellite in the sky, and it locked onto that one satellite, and it moved. There's 
triangulation and whatnot. But the, the point is this, like it was able to go straight to within less than an inch accuracy because of what it was locked onto. Now, John Deere found out early on in the GPS days that a farmer working at 10 o'clock at night would get up the next morning, he would hop in his tractor and hit resume, and the tractor would shift, sometimes three feet, sometimes two inches, sometimes four feet, sometimes eight feet. It didn't matter because what was happening was overnight, the earth shifted and the tractor would lock on to a different set of satellites and their algorithm was messed up or something like that. But here's the point. They were locked on to something different than what they were locked on to the night before, and it caused drift. This is what Paul is saying. You lock on to Jesus, and that's it. You're one-dimensional. You lock on to him. The most important thing is that you would know Jesus and him crucified. You lock on to that. Otherwise, you drift. You drift. You go. And we can see this in our lives. We have ungodly ties to other things and other people besides Jesus. Ungodly ties occur when we are too dependent on another individual, such as a mother, father, brother, sister, friend, coworker, boss, anyone, right? If we have any relationship that ties us to another person over being tied to Jesus, we've drifted. We're now in idolatry. Evidence of this in, in our lives includes dependency on which another person's lives consumes you. Your thoughts are consumed about their life. Your emotions are based on their lives, not on Jesus. How the other person thinks and feels about you is of utmost importance. Therefore, you base your actions, your decisions, your thoughts, deciding how they, a person, might approve or disapprove of your actions. These relationships replace our intimacy with God with a false intimacy with another person. We do this all the time. Let me ask you, is there a relationship that you go to first before you go to Jesus? Would you rather talk with someone besides Jesus? Would you rather hear what they have to say about a certain situation, or would you rather go and cast yourself onto Jesus? Is your mind focused on that other person's thoughts or actions or beliefs, or on Jesus' thoughts, actions, or beliefs? This is what Paul is saying. I have resolved my life to be about Jesus and him crucified. He would go to Jesus first. He would think, what would Jesus do in this situation first? How would Jesus say this? I need power from Jesus. Simon Peter answered him. This is before Paul wrote these, these words. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's resolved to know Jesus and Him crucified. His entire life was brought to this point and to this one sentence, and I would say that I think you and I should really think about this sentence. Is that true? Is it as important for us as it was for the Apostle Paul to have our lives based on Jesus and Him alone? And what about Jesus? Jesus lived a life that demanded a gospel explanation, right? God in glory from before the foundations of the world. He and uh, the first, or John says that he was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, that he was glory before the foundation of the world, before he came to walk on this, this world. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus moved in such a way that he humbled himself. So his life demands a, a gospel explanation. He was in glory. He created the earth. Like you were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And here he is above the earth, reigning in glory. And then he says, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to live amongst these people that I created. It's always interesting to me. I went to seminary and people always argue about Jesus walking on water, his miracles, right? They were like, maybe it was like the tides came out that night and Jesus actually walked on dry land and it looked like he was walking on water, but it was it really it was the tides. I mean, that was an argument. And other people were like, well, it was uh, somehow the moon kind of cast a shadow and so he wasn't actually walking on the water, he was walking on land. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And here's the thing, like, it's miraculous that Jesus walked on water, but that's not what Paul is saying here. It's miraculous that Jesus walked at all. We're talking God of glory coming down and getting legs. That's gross, right? Think about it. God is moving among us. He's walking among us. He's walking at all. Same with the, did, did, when Jesus in John chapter 2, did he turn the, the water into wine or was it grape juice? You know, and they're just walking through the miracle and this is probably what it meant. The real miracle is that Jesus drank anything at all. It's not that Jesus turned water into wine. It's that he came and he lived among us and drank among us and ate among us. This is our Savior. This is who Paul says, I'm going to orient my entire life around this Jesus. So we believe as Christians that Jesus lived a life that demanded a gospel explanation. We also believe that he empowers us to live likewise. It's true of Jesus. What does that look like in our own lives? In our own lives, a life that displays the gospel so that we have to explain the gospel. All right, let's start. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Okay? He had reached the end of himself. He had no words that were going to be plausible words of wisdom. And he's trying to preach Jesus. But in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power is how he spoke, so that your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the reason he's, he, that God has given him fear, trembling, and not plausible words is so that our faith might rest in Jesus, not in Paul. Because it's so easy to think, I have to become like Paul in order to be a teacher, in order to be a Christian. And that's not it. We have to become like Jesus in order to be a Christian. And the way that we do that is through the power of God, bringing it on to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. A life that's following Jesus is really a life that makes no sense, Right? He did not speak on his own initiative. Like We're talking about Jesus. He forgave his enemies. He, he prayed for those who persecuted him. Jesus paid for our debts. 
He welcomed us into a home in which we don't belong. He cleaned up our mess afterward. He reconciled us as hostile unbelievers to himself through Jesus, through himself. He advocates before the Father on our behalf. Jesus felt our pain and was compassionate. He visited us in prison when we were enslaved to sin. He set us free, and he did all of this with the cost of his own life. See, we rehearse these things. We do come together uh, on a weekly basis, and we talk about Jesus, and we rehearse these things, but we also rehearse them, and we speak them to those who don't know Jesus. And here is, in my mind, the real, uh, the crux of what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 4, 5 here is that God has much, we have little, and he gives to us. We have less, he has more, and he gives to us in his grace. In John 3, um, John the Baptist was saying this simple word. He said, God must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must what? Decrease. And then he walks through, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. We've got to get into this place where Jesus was at, that Jesus spoke through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus uttered words through the third person of the Trinity, that Paul said, when I came to you, my speech was not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. And there are endless examples biblically of what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I just want to talk about two. The first one is what Jesus did. He didn't speak on his own initiative. So if we're going to live a life that demands a gospel explanation, if someone looks at your life and they're like, wow, he's a really good person. Wow, she's really, really good. That's not living a life that's a gospel explanation. That's just living a moral life. That's helping someone across the street. It's not cursing your, your coworker out. It's, it's basically you're just living a life that's moral, and this is not what Paul is talking about. He is behind the eight ball. He is scared. He has fear. He has trembling. And yet he speaks in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power that Jesus didn't even speak of his own initiative. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. This is different. If you have a really like, quick wit about your opinion and that type of thing, it might not be spirit-led. It might not be a life that demands a gospel explanation. It might be that you just have a really quick wit. What does this even mean? It means that Jesus was subservient to his Father and spoke what his Father wanted him to do. Whatever his Father desired, Jesus spoke that. That's what it means to be spirit-filled in this sense. John 16, 13 talks about the person of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit follows suit 
and not speaking on his own initiative. So we do the same thing. We come in weakness. We come with not lofty speech, not wisdom, um, trembling and fear and weakness. This is how we come, and yet we speak the words of God. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This is speaking what God wants us to speak. Let me define this for you. I don't, I don't want for us to get lost in the weeds with a, a poor definition of what prophecy is. Um, I'll define prophecy, this is a quote, I will define prophecy more specifically as the speaking forth in merely human words, something the Holy Spirit has sovereignly and often spontaneously revealed to a believer. Prophecy, therefore, is not based on a hunch, it's not based on a supposition, on an inference, it's not an educated guess, or even on sanctified wisdom. Prophecy is not based on personal insight, intuition, or illumination. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. This is what distinguishes prophecy from preaching and teaching. Preaching is always based on a text of Scripture. Prophecy is always based on a spontaneous revelation. This is from Sam Storms. So when we are with our neighbors, we are with our coworker, we are with someone who doesn't know Jesus, we need to bring the words of Jesus into that conversation. Our words will not help. Our words are opinions. Our words, uh, they have no power to save. That's what Paul is saying here. But what we can do is take what God has already said. So we take scriptures and we ask God, what scripture do you want me to bring to my coworker? What scripture do you want me to tell to my neighbor? What scripture do you want me to tell to my spouse? Right? And so sometimes we do that. There's a, I have this running text thread with one of our current members, and he's always dropping like all these scriptures on me. And sometimes they are right on. They split my heart right open, and I'm weeping. And then other times I'm like, yeah, that's really good. And then we get into this thing where it's a, a scripture battle. So then I, I up his psalm, and, and then he throws in a proverb, and then we go to the New Testament. And it's just, it's really, really helpful because every once in a while, it's just this moment where it just hits me, and it's so helpful. And what he's doing when he texts me is not speaking on his own accord. He asks God, like, what do you want Glenn to hear? And then he drops it on me, and it's beautiful and it takes courage, of which we have little, but of what God has all. And Paul didn't have that courage, and I'm guessing that we don't either. But it's a demonstration in the Spirit if we can then take the Scripture or take what is happening in their lives and ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you want me to say? So what if God wants for your neighbor to know a truth that will set them free from a decade of shame and guilt? And God brings a word for you to bring to them. Or what if it, God wants for, you to, for your coworker to be encouraged deeply so that they might know that he is coming after them, that he's highlighting them, that he is drawing them to his son, Jesus? What if God wants for your neighbor's family to come over to your house and hear the gospel and see the power of it demonstrated in your living room or at your dining table? See, this is the part of where we can't make this stuff up. I mean, people have, and, and we need to know that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what we need to do because there have been 
false prophecies that have been spoken in the name of Jesus, right? This is not what I'm advocating. This is not what's happening in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul is saying, I came to you with much fear and trembling, but it was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he was able to speak in his fear, in his trembling, the words that God wanted him to say. And the second way that I want for us to understand how the Holy Spirit comes on us is that we boldly make much of Jesus. In the book of Acts, God sends the Holy Spirit through Jesus to uh, these people that are the disciples that are in the upper room. In Acts 1.8, he says, but when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he sends the Holy Spirit on them, and what did they do? They witnessed about Jesus, first in Jerusalem. That was the, the, the church that was in there that the book of Hebrews was written to. Then Samaria, then Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. Back then it was Rome. Now today it's, we know it's other places. But you see this phrase, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were all uh, being drawn and having power in them through the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to talk about the mighty works of God in different dialects. They brought the gospel to people that they didn't even speak their language, but they made much about Jesus. Also in Acts 2, um, filled with the Spirit and full of the Spirit will reveal that they are not associated with ecstatic speech. This was intelligible things that they were saying. They were presenting the gospel in an intelligible message. So filled with the Spirit, Peter preaches his Pentecostal sermon. It says in Acts 4.8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, peoples, and elders, right? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is boldly making much about Jesus, no matter where you're at. So if you are with someone who doesn't know Jesus, you talk about Jesus and him and him crucified, and him and him alone. I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, that's what happens. You start to talk about Jesus. Acts 4.31, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, making much about Jesus. In John 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring glory to Jesus. He will give you my words. He will bring to remembrance what I said to you so that you will be able to boldly proclaim it. In Acts 5, we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And what did they do? In Acts 6, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, began to preach his sermon, and it was so good that he died at the end of it. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, boldly proclaiming Jesus. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He fills you with compassion for people that don't know Jesus. I've seen this time after time after time where he comes on us. Uh, Romans 5, 5 is true. The Holy Spirit has poured out his love into our hearts already. And I see that. So here's the, as we're thinking about this, we're thinking of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We have less. The Holy Spirit has more. And in his grace, he gives to us. 
So where does this power come from? It's the Holy Spirit power that Paul was talking about. The mark of an early Christian was that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they made much about Jesus no matter where they were at. Here's what I want for us to think about, too, is um, that we need from Jesus. It's not that we give to him. It's that he gives to us. We need his stuff. He doesn't need our stuff. Let's talk about this. In Matthew 3.11, we see John the Baptist. He's baptizing people with water, and it's a baptism of repentance. He even says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is talking about Jesus. He's talking about a baptism. Then he sees Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes on him, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here he is, and Jesus comes up to John, and he says, I want you to baptize me. And John's seeing that his baptism compared to Jesus is so weak. It's not plausible. It's not powerful. He's like, I I have a baptism that leads to repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. He never did anything that was wrong. But Jesus said, I want for you to baptize me. And in this was a baptism of uh, repentance, but Jesus didn't have any sin. It was a, a baptism that showed that Jesus was going to move on us. It was a foreshadowing moment that crosses over when Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you with spirit and fire. So in Matthew 3.13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John said this, and I think this is so true. I need to be baptized by you, is what he said to Jesus. I need yours. You don't need mine. And Jesus does get baptized, and the heavens parted. And this just talks in the same language that this was a violent event. I know that, um, I believe it's in Matthew where it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him as a, a dove, but in Mark and Luke, it talks about the heavens were rended. This is the same language that's used when the curtain was torn, that 18-inch veil was torn in between the, the inner place and the, the most holy place, Right? And also the rocks around Jerusalem at that moment were torn in half. It's the same verbiage of an earthquake when God sends his Holy Spirit onto Jesus. There's power that's there. And when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were rended. We need his baptism. We need his power. We have little. We have no lofty speech, no wisdom. We don't have boldness, we have weakness, we have fear, we have much trembling. Our speech and our message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of God's power on us. We need his baptism. We have little. He has much, and we need it. I'm going to have our response teams come forward. God is calling us to live a life that demands a gospel explanation. And the power for that comes from him. This life, simply put, is that we have less and he has more. This is our life that demands 
a gospel explanation. He has more and more and more, and in his grace, he gives to us. He provides for us. So as we talk through communion here, I want to talk just for a minute about what we're doing here. We're celebrating what Jesus has given us. We're celebrating this baptism that he has given us. We're celebrating this power that he has given to us. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night that Lord, the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, and this is my cup. Do this in remembrance of me. I want for us to linger on that phrase that when he had given thanks. So the, the power of God is instilled in us. Jesus says that not only the Spirit will be with you, he will be in you. So the Spirit lives in us and he moves in us. Now it's giving thanks for what Jesus has done. I have resolved to know nothing but him and him crucified for us, his work on the cross. So I would really like for us to give thanks to him for this because he gave thanks when he did it. So living a life that demands a gospel explanation is giving thanks for what God has already done and has already given to you. Even when it's difficult to give thanks, even when it's really hard to give thanks, he is saying, I gave thanks right before I went to the cross. Every time you do this, you remember Jesus. And again, this is not... This is because we have less, we have little, and he has more, and this is what he brings to us and gives to us. So let me pray for us before we take communion, and then we'll move into it. Father, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit onto Paul and making him aware of what was happening that he was coming in fear and trembling. And yet, Lord, you gave power and you gave spirit to him. Lord, would you do the same for Redeemer Church? Would you send your spirit onto us to give us power, to give us compassion, to give us the ability to say thanks, to help us not speak on our own initiative, that, Lord, we may boldly make much of you, no matter who the audience is. I ask, God, that you would help us as we are moving toward communion, that in our hearts we would say, I've resolved, I have judged, I have decided to know nothing else in my life except for you crucified. So when we take this, Lord, I pray that communion would happen deep communion between us and you. That we would see you in your goodness. We would see you having the, the, the heavens rended for you where God is sending his power onto you and is bringing to you his love, bringing to you his power, his compassion. I ask God that you would help us. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things through the Spirit. Amen. Amen.